Um, well, look, in the first talk, we were thinking about hope as we try to navigate faith in our world today. And in the second talk, we're thinking about something which is a prominent issue for society. And strangely enough, is probably we are the only society in history. I don't, I don't know how you would test this, but I think it's right to say we're the only society in history that is really thinking about this issue in a conscious way, and it's the issue of identity. Because up until you know, pretty much every generation, every society before us, identity formation kind of went on and just happened without people reflecting on it. But we are very aware of this issue today, not just identity politics, but identity formation and how it impacts us. Now, a number of years ago, there was an advert for Head and Shoulders. You can tell it was a number of years ago because I haven't been paying attention to shampoo adverts for some time, right? <laughs> but it went like this. Um, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Now, it was really, really clever kind of, you know, advertising slogan, right? Because it immediately puts that feeling in you of like, oh, what if I blow it? Uh, what if as I come to this weekend away and I meet people for the first time, what if I say the wrong thing? And what if that sets my identity on the wrong course? Can I, can I undo that? It kind of stirs up that unconscious maybe anxiety that we all feel as we embark on this project that we're so aware of in the Western world at the moment of identity formation. Now, forming our identity is something which I suppose we become conscious of for a number of different reasons, but one of them particularly is because of technology. Um, on your phones or your devices, when you get into social media particularly, you are faced with a myriad of choices about how you're going to present yourself. Now, particularly for the young adult and below you know, generation, identity formation is something that then confronts them almost every time they go on social media. And by the way, all the stats show you that is a lot. You know, the curse of flashes. And who are you going to be? It's just a world of freedom out there, right, on one level, of how you present yourself. And of course, you want to be authentic, but you don't want to let it all hang out, right? So you put a few filters on. And you know, it's just so difficult you know, to know how to present yourself, because of course you want to be, you know, I suppose you, you want to be thoughtful, but not too much of a geek. You, know, you want to be attractive, but not vain. You want to be moral, but not preachy. You want to be engaged in social causes, but not virtue signaling. So it's very difficult to walk the tram lines of all that, isn't it? I mean, we all know the type of social media posts that, you know, we, we love to hate, but we can't tell anyone we hate. You know, it's the person standing there in front of Kilimanjaro, just climbed Killy for charity, hashtag blessed. <laughs> We're obsessed with identity, but it's so tricky. One of the great philosophers who thought about identity is um, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish um, philosopher and existentialist. And he, um, he said that when you think about identity, it's not just if you get identity wrong, it's not just a mistake. In some sense, it's the mistake because your identity goes with you wherever you go, and so it impacts everything. He wrote this. The greatest hazard of all, losing oneself, can occur very quietly in the world, as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any other loss, an arm, a leg, five dollars, a wife, <laughs> I'm not sure who has life, is sure to be noticed, but not identity. In other words, you get identity wrong, you make the mistake. So, you know, we're on important ground as we talk about this today. Um, let's think about identity, and as we think about it, I want to think, first of all, in this passage, the inadequacy of identity without Christ, the inadequacy of identity without Christ. Then we're going to think about a secure and liberating identity, which is what I think we're all wanting, 
And then thirdly, we're going to talk about living out our identity in Christ. So first of all, the inadequacy of identity without Christ. I'm kind of going to take the passage in reverse order, and we'll start towards the end of it with those famous words from verse 24. Here's the inadequacy of identity without Christ, and it's all in the context of verse 23, being born again, that is being given a new identity in Christ, not of a perishable seed, but of the imperishable living and enduring word of God. For, verse 24, all people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field, the grass withers. And the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter is, um, Peter is using this illustration of the grass um, and the glory of the flowers of the field to help us understand the pitfalls of us trying to form our identity without Christ. You know, um, one of the things that's uh, in mind when you're thinking about identity is kind of glory. Um, you know, making sure you have a, something that matters, an identity that says something. The old Hebrew word for, for glory is um, kavod, and it means heaviness or, or weightiness. And it's fascinating how that word, you know, kind of carries the meaning over into the English language. Because we use phrases, don't we, when it comes to glory of like, I want to make an impact. I want to leave my mark. I want to make a dent. Um, I want people to know that I've been here a legacy. This is all, these are all glory concepts, glory words. And notice here that Peter does say, yeah, people have a certain glory. They're like the flowers of the field. I mean, you look at a flower in the full flush of summer, and it's glorious to a degree, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's attractive. It, it's there. But the problem is, he says, is that if you form your identity on anything other than Christ, the glory does not last. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now today there are two, generally, two dominant identity narratives, and I want to kind of lift them up for you, show them to you a little bit so that you can identify them, and maybe do a bit of self-analysis as you do, like which one kind of chimes with you, which one is you know, particularly relevant to you and maybe to your friends as well. But I say two dominant um, ones. The first one is be true to yourself. It gets presented in different ways. But it's the idea of being authentic. There is a true you that you've got to find and discover. Quite often that true you might be hidden. It takes a bit of time to work it out. But when you find the true you, that is who you have to be true to. Right? We could call that the modern identity narrative. Then there's one which is different to this, but often we confuse and think it's the same. And this is you can be whoever you want to be. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Be whoever you want to be. Now notice they're slightly different. The first one says there is a you, you've got to discover when you find that you, be true to that you, right? The second one is saying there's no you. (laughs) You are a blank canvas, you can be whatever you want to be. Now, not only, but at least in the area of gender and sexuality, these two narratives become hugely significant. So think of Bohemian Rhapsody. the biographers of um, Freddie Mercury say that this was his coming out song, and the lyrics, even though people didn't really know at the time, were very much part of his coming out. And so it's actually celebrated within the gay community. Particularly, you know, think of the, the famous lyrics, where my body's aching all the time, goodbye everybody, I've got to go, got to leave you all behind and face the truth. And what's the truth? The truth is that he's gay, right? And so he's got to be true to that, finally. He's coming out, he's, he's expressing that. That's the real him. Don't stop him from being true to himself. But for others, 
you know, particularly sometimes within the transgender community, they say, look, that's fine, there's a degree of liberation there, but it doesn't go far enough, because ultimately, how do you know that this you you're trying to be true to is really you? Isn't that still a bit constraining? What if you don't want to be that? And so you have Eddie Izzard, for example, the comedian who up until a year ago would talk of having a boy-girl mode, a boy mode and a girl mode, and he would change between the two, and sometimes he'd mash them up together. And his whole point was, I can be whoever I want to be. Don't constrain me, right? He was not trying to be true to something, particularly, if you listen to him. He was just trying to say, I can be whoever I want to be. Really prominent narratives, but they are different. Now, it's not only sexuality as well. It occurs in all different areas. So why is it that careers are so short now? Why is it that people change careers? It used to be for my parents' generation that the career was like a cruise liner. You get on the cruise liner, you know where you're going, retirement, the sunny shores of retirement. <laughs> and on this cruise liner, there are different decks, and you start at the lower deck. But as the, as the cruise goes on, you rise up the decks until you're finally, hopefully, at the captain's table, just in time to dock, and the sunny shores of retirement. Now, I mean, you know, HR will tell you, well, it's like shooting a series of rapids. You know, you get on, it's fun, it's exciting, but you get off the next one, and you jump into a different raft, and you're in another rapid, and off you go. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you're trying to realize through your career often your identity, and your identity is changing, and you want new challenges and new avenues, and it's not that you are an accountant necessarily for life. I mean, with all due respect, if you're an accountant here, you know, that might be the thing you don't particularly want to do, right? So, you know, you want to change it up and try a different thing, and that's fine, because you can, because you can be whoever you want to be, you see? It's not just career, um, also goes along with relationships, why are relationships more? transitory, more transactional, why is commitment harder to come by, comes to housing as well, impacts all these different areas. And so consciously or not, we're all playing out these narratives. We say, well, okay, so that's fine, Pete, thanks very much for pointing that out, you know, marginal interest maybe, um, but what's the, what's the point? Well, the point is, let me first of all say, the point is that those narratives can't both be true, can they? It can't both be true that there is a you you've got to be true to and also true that there's no you and you can be whoever you want to be. So they're mutually exclusive, so which one's right? And actually some huge debates, huge debates around some really sensitive topics are going on in society right now. So you want to know why J.K. Rowling gets such a hard time on Twitter in the feminism and transgenderism debate is because of these narratives. She's saying to be a woman is to be true to who she is. And transgenderism is saying, don't you constrain us. Don't you tell us we can't be a woman if we're not born gendered in the right way. That's a huge debate. It's actually an active debate in Parliament that's going on about religious and, liber and liberties and freedoms right now. So these are huge debates, massive debates going on in society. So there's that thing. But the other problem with it, that not only that they both can't be true, is that in the nicest possible way, there's not satisfaction there. And this is where Scripture speaks into this. All people are like grass. In other words, if you try to found your identity on something other than the revealed word of God and who you are in Christ, you will face this experience. You will flourish, probably, for a time, and that'll be wonderful, like a flower of the field, but sooner or later, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. In other words, there's dissatisfaction. 
you know, whenever you build your something, you should always look at the foundations. And so if you're constructing something as important as your identity on these narratives, the big question is, can it bear the weight of your expectations? Can it bear your dreams? Can it bear your fears? Can it bear the future? Can it bear this period we've been through where the foundations have been shaken? Will it stand up? Well, the word of the Lord says no. It's not permanent enough. It's not secure enough. I mean, be whoever you want to be. Well, who am I then? What if I, what if I don't know who I am? My emotions change every morning, particularly before I've had my first cup of coffee. So, you know, does that mean that I change every morning? That's just too unstable. Be true to yourself. Well, what if I don't like the person that I really feel I am and I'm becoming? What do I do then? Am I just stuck with that? It's too constraining. So, so the foundations appear to have cracks. Here's how Russell Brand, the great philosopher of our generation, put it. <laughs> There's the initial thrill of achievement. Oh, my word, it's arrived. The same as if you acquired a good pair of shoes that you long craved, and then you realize they're too tight. They're not as good as you hoped for. And as you walk around them, you realize you need nutrition from a higher source. You need something more, more valuable. Celebrity, the thing he self-consciously admits he was forming his identity on, and probably still is, is like being presented with an absolutely glorious meal, and then you eat it, and you realize it's utterly vacuous. There's no taste, there's no sucker, there's no nutrition, it's tiresome, he goes on. We have within us a yearning for something higher. Someone told me once that all desire is the desire to be with God in substitute form, so perhaps we can draw attention not to the shadow on the wall, but to the source of light itself. Fascinating, isn't it? It's an interview with Jeremy Paxman a number of years ago. He's saying you go after it, you form your identity on it. It's like glorious, it's like the flowers. But then the heat of life comes along, as it always does, and suddenly it withers, because it, it's not enough. You feel like you're not enough. So what's the alternative? A secure and liberating source of identity. Notice how Peter identifies a very different source of identity. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work, impartial, work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. See the empty, the vanity word that links to verse 24. Later on he's saying you weren't redeemed that way, you were redeemed with something more important, more permanent, more valuable. So that's how you should live it out. And the first thing he notices, is, is he points to, is you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Now, I think this is a strange verse, okay? Because this is supposed to be a verse of comfort, but I don't know how you feel about the idea of a father who judges everything impartially. In other words, he sees you, the real you. Hashtag no filters the you behind the social media account, the real you, warts and all. You know, you, you arrive in a setting like this and, you know, we greet people, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine, and you're not fine. <laughs> but you just need to say it, right? Because you don't want to let it all hang out because that would be awkward and very un-British. By the way, if you're not British, please do us a favor and get it over that. <laughs> but there's this real dilemma for us as human beings, which is, we, we long to be known. We long to be seen. Not to be seen is awful. 
So it's like any friendship or any romantic relationship or any relationship, you, you don't reveal it all straight away, right? Because what if they don't like what they see? So you tentatively take steps forward, show a little bit more. Still with me? A little bit more. Gonna leave, gonna walk out the door? A little bit more. In other words, we want to be known. We want to be seen. We, we want a father who says, I know you. Okay, I see you. The real you. The you behind the makeup. The you behind a thousand masks. The you that where the head hits the pillow and it's 2 a.m. and it's in the small hours and you're playing back over that mistake of the day. The you that's anxious though you present confident. The you that's insecure though you present like everything's fine. The you that can't stop thinking about that argument and playing it over in your head again and though you're saying it's their fault, you know it's your fault. You want to be seen because not to be seen is a tragedy. There's no greater tragedy than not to be loved for who you really are. So if you only ever present a mask, you can never really be loved. What a tragedy. And this says, there is a father. And uh, look, I know as I speak to a room like this that we all have had different experiences of fathers. I live on an estate with high rates of fatherless generation. But we know what a father should be, what a father could be. There says, there is a father who loves you but he also sees you, and he sees you, and he loves you, and that is to be known, and that is to be liberated. He says, I know you, I know the worst thing about you that you've ever done, and yet in that moment, I still love you. In the film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Tom Ripley is always pretending to be someone, right? He, he cons people all the time, and he says at one point, I always thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. Wow, doesn't that sum up a generation? But the key moment comes in a scene when he puts it like this. Don't you just take the past. You put it in a room. You put it in a basement and you lock the door and you never go in there. That's what I do. And then you meet someone special and all you want to do is toss them the key and say, open up, step inside. But you can't because it's dark. There are demons. And if anybody saw how ugly it is, I keep wanting to do that. Fling the door open, let the light in, and clean everything out. That's the longing we all have. But how do you do that and not face rejection? You call on a father who judges justly. In other words, he knows everything about you, but he loves you. William Wordsworth famously said, to God himself, we cannot give a holier name than father. how can you be sure that this father knows you and sees you all your sin, all your failures, all the ugliness of a broken character and yet still loves you? Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. One of the great questions in identity is this. How much am I worth? Because if you know you're worth something, that gives you a secure foundation. It starts to give you the freedom to really express yourself if you can be sure you're worth something. Well, how much are you worth? I mean, are you just a collection of atoms thrown randomly together? I mean, you can construct value, but there's no ultimate value then to you, is there? Are you more than that? Or do you 
play out that you are what you achieve. You know, you constantly construct your identity, do well at life, be popular, have this many followers, have this career, achieve these things, get involved in this cause, all as though it's adding money in the bank to your value, but it's never enough, is it? It never feels enough, so how much are you worth? And ultimately, if, that's, if it's about achievement, then what about people who can't achieve? What about the disabled? What about the unborn? Do they have no worth? Tragically, our society seems to be going that way. No, because your value, your worth is not predicated on what you do, on what you achieve, on who you are, on where you come from, on your race, ethnicity, gender. All of those things are important, but they don't define you. They're not at rock bottom who you are. How much are you worth? For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or bought or valued from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. Let me ask you this question. How much is the blood of Christ worth? He is God himself in human form. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the second person of the Trinity, eternal, unchangeable, infinite, perfect, holy, robed in glory. One drop of his blood is the most valuable thing the world could ever know. And he poured it all out for you on the cross. Not just one drop, all of it. Because he wants you to know in Christ how much you are worth. The years will not diminish your worth. Your failures and sin will not reduce your worth, but merely emphasize the worthiness of God's grace. Others may say, you're not enough. Try harder, do more, be better. But Christ has proved your worth when he died for you. And you know what the most amazing thing is? It can never be taken away because it was never conditional on what you did or what you have done or what you're going to do. So you can't sin it away you can't throw it away. It can never be taken away. It's yours. That's your foundation. Is there any firmer foundation in the world? No. And so when you really get that, it's perfectly secure. And because it's perfectly secure, you know what it does? Oh, it liberates you. The relief. I don't need to strive all the time. Just come back from New York. You know what New York's about? The hustle. Everything's about the hustle. Goodness me, you think London's busy? Wow. Everyone's hustling, got to make it, because if you don't make it there, you know what? You don't make it anywhere. <laughs> and a lot of us constantly have that sense of do more, be more, achieve more. No, it doesn't define you. The story is told of a precious model of a wooden ship that took years of careful and brilliant craftsmanship by a master craftsman to make. And once he'd finished it, he put it on his mantelpiece and invited all his friends around to enjoy it. And they said, it's just stunning. It's beautiful. It's worth an enormous amount of money. Tragically, a number of months later, it was stolen in a house raid and he never saw it again. He mourned its loss. Years later, he was walking past an antique shop and he saw it in the window. Went into the antique shop and the price for it was just astronomical. But he went home, sold up a number of his savings, went back to the shop, bought the ship put it back on his mantelpiece. And as he placed it on his mantelpiece, he smiled and said, you are twice mine, for I made you and I've redeemed you. My friends, the Lord Jesus Christ says that about you. You are twice mine, 
You were made fearfully and wonderfully made, precious from the beginning. But not only that, I've now redeemed you. Oh, when you get that, it liberates you. Let me try to unpack in the final point as you live out your identity, how it liberates you. First of all, let God's grace restore your identity. Verses 22 to 23, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, the truth of who you are in Christ, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Notice how he says, now you've been purified. In other words, you're not a finished product yet. You've got this identity in Christ. It's a gift to you, but the whole lifelong project is working out the glorious implications of who you are in Christ and how it impacts how you love other people, how you see yourself and how you love yourself, how you love the world. And it happens, he says, through the word. The same means of this new birth where you discover your identity is the same means by which you work out your identity, which is why he goes on to say in chapter two, verse two, crave spiritual milk to grow up in your salvation. In other words, keep reading God's word and understand who you are and the implications of who you are. Now, what this means is that Grace doesn't replace your identity, but grace restores your identity, and this is so important. Uh, Jago and I were you know, obviously joking about the fact that we both worked at Accenture, but one of the jokes used to be that Accenture people were all the same, and I'll leave you to work out whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You can speak to your pastor afterwards. Church, can I just say this really clearly? Church should not be like that, right? Church is not a group of people who you would just find together anyway because they're kind of all the Accenture type, <laughs> right? Or all that HTC type. There shouldn't be an HTC type, and wonderfully, as I look around the room and speak to you, there doesn't seem to be, because church is about restoring your identity, not about conforming your identity to some mold as though Christians all should fit in the same mold and be in the same things and like the same music and dress the same way. And No, it should be diverse and different. From the off, it was a chaotic mix of people who would never be brought together, suddenly thrown together, all figuring out how they live out this new identity in Christ and love one another. So church is gonna be a place where it's difficult, where you tread on each other's toes. We talk about and inspire at my church having a 25% rule, which is 25% of what we do in church you should not like. But you know what? That is oxygen for the person who's different to you, right? No, so we do a kid's song up front on Sunday morning. Our treasurer, who's a bit more of a conservative type, he hates it. You'll never get him doing any actions. But the kids are there waving their arms about. And for the parents, that moment when the children are engaged, ah, the joy. For the introvert, the nightmare. (laughs) right? There shouldn't be homogeneity. An example I like to use is we have one of the most valuable things in our church is an 18th century communion table. It's very, very beautiful. And um, we had it restored a few years ago with a generous grant. And um, when it was restored, the restorer didn't come along and just sand it all down and take away the lovely deep color of the wood that's been there over a couple of hundred years. No, that would have been to ruin the table. Interestingly, the restorer didn't even get rid of all the scratches. He um, filled some of the scratches in. He polished it up. He wanted to respect the integrity of the table whilst bringing it to a kind of new glory. What do you think Jesus is doing in your life? Uh, You've got some dents in you, haven't you? You've got some cracks. The world's left its mark on you. You know what? He doesn't get rid of those. He came back with scars, right, from the dead. But he's going to fill those in. 
with his love and his grace. He's not going to polish you down and strip it all away so that everything that's happened in your life is suddenly gone. No, no, he's going to let the deep hues and colors that have been formed over a period of time shine in you. It's not grace replacing nature, it's grace restoring nature. So there should be great freedom. Be you in Christ. The world will say be you, there's no anchor. But it's be you in Christ. And you know what, that is a lifetime to work out, that's part of the joy of the Christian walk. Secondly, let God's grace not only restore your identity, but finally relativize your idols. What I mean by that is part of the ongoing battle with identity formation is not to form your identity on the wrong thing. And it's not that when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, immediately you have no trouble with idols anymore. In other words, you have no trouble forming your identity on the wrong thing anymore. No, no, no. Like My whole journey to becoming to Christ was dealing with my performance idol. Guess what? That is a daily battle. A number of years ago, I realized that throughout my childhood, because um, I was a sports person, it was always train, 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 train through the week, perform on the weekend, receive affirmation, go back to the drawing board. Then I realized as a pastor, what do I do? Prep, prep, prep through the week, perform on the weekend, receive credit and adulation maybe, not very much, but a little bit, and then go and do it. I, it was terrifying. Had I just replaced one rhythm for the same rhythm in a different sphere? It's a constant battle for me to say to myself, I am not defined by the church or by the last sermon I preached or by whether someone likes it or not. I'm, I'm defined by Christ. But I'm killing that day by day, weed killer by weed killer moment. But it's not done. I'd love it to be done. But it's probably going to take a lifetime. Relativize your idols. Realize it's not important. It doesn't define me. Yeah, it still hurts when someone says, I really didn't like what you said there. You just have to deal with that, deal with this thing. Sometimes I get in the car after preaching and um, my wife says to me, can I give you some feedback now? I say, love, you know in the upper room, Jesus says to the disciples, I have so much to tell you, but I can't bear it right now. She says, I thought you were supposed to be applying the gospel of grace to yourself. I said, give me time, give me time. It just takes time. Don't be defined by your work by your social status, by your looks, by your charm, by your ability to tell jokes, by how many people like you, by being a pastor, by your impact, by being a tiger mom, or being overly assertive, or being a pressurizing dad, or being the relaxed one in the room who helps everyone else to calm down. Don't be defined by those things. They may be good, they may be bad. The point is, they don't define you. Christ defines you, and everything else is relative to him. As the words of the hymn go, Saviour, since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, all their glory like the flowers of the field, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children, those who have a father who loves you. No, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be a people or at least I do, and I think I can speak for my friends here. We want to be a people who know you as Father, know how precious that is, and know all that you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, and form our identity on that. And that will work itself out in a myriad of ways, as we're very different, made in the image of an infinite and perfect God. So please, Lord, 
help us to figure that out individually, but also how that impacts our community here at HTC. And might you work in us by your spirit. Keep us rooted in Christ, we pray, and help us, therefore, to relativize our idols. For Jesus' sake, amen.